0: Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. Uh, good to see you. I've just had um, a really alarming message uh, come through on my WhatsApp. Um, I'm actually going to shoehorning it into the preach a bit later. Um, Nathan, can you just Google whether it's possible to die from box jellyfish stings, please? Thanks very much all become clear. So it's great to see you uh, this morning. Um, you are the reason uh, Faith and I moved to Stockwell. Don't be, don't be afraid. Um, you're the reason Faith and I moved to Stockwell. We originally, when we moved to London in 2013, uh, we lived in Canary Wharf. No one else lives in Canary Wharf. On weekends, everyone just goes home to Hampshire and uh, and we're left there alone with uh, with no community. So we, we looked around London, we figure out, uh, figured out where people we knew lived and, and where a kind of a good community uh, could be. This was before the church went to four services. Um, and what we knew at the time, that if there was going to be another church service outside of um, the Mermaid and Blackfriars, it was probably going to be here with, with Tim and Jackson, and a bunch of you guys. Um, so we moved here preempting that. So we moved just, just behind over there, um, and then we moved again, but we're still in, in Stockwell, just up on, on Wandsworth Road. Um, and just looking out here this morning, it just makes me think um, that was a really successful move for us. Um, I'm really happy we made the decision a year and a half or so ago to stay in London um, and the reason being that this was going to start in January we wanted to be part of this um, and it's really been a great experience since this whole thing started in in January so that's a little bit about us Um, I'm going to talk to you uh, continuing the series on the the summer of love um, because as a church we think uh, the community really matters and that we grow best when we're surrounded by people who love us and are committed to our well-being. So we're currently looking at John's first letter, which is all about how God's love transforms us into being the kind of people who are able to love one another. So we started off Liam talking to us about uh, life, love, and light. Um, Then we had the new old commandment. That was with Alicia a few weeks ago. And then last week, we had family resemblance, I think, from Mark. Um, I wasn't here. Um, And this week, I'm going to talk to you about how love does, and it will become clear. So John's telling us to love one another, and I don't think there's gonna be a single person in this room who's gonna disagree with the idea of love. No one here is gonna yell at me and say, how dare you to talk about love? That's a terrible idea. Everyone agrees with love. Everyone thinks love is a good idea. Every political party, ideology, people group, pretty much everyone is in love with the idea of love. So I'm not gonna try and convince you that we should love, What I want to tell you about is what John wants you to know about what is Christian love. How should we go about loving others? So John starts here with the story of Cain and Abel. If you're not familiar with the story of Cain and Abel, this happens. We have to go right back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis in the first few chapters. Um, You have Adam and Eve that God places on the earth to cultivate the garden. There's the original sin um, where Adam and Eve... Uh, sin against God, they fall short, they rebel against God's commands. They have children, they have Cain, they have Abel, they're brothers. Um, Cain becomes jealous of Abel. John tells us that Abel was righteous before God and, and Cain's deeds were unrighteous. Cain kills his brother, Abel. Within one generation of mankind being on earth, we experience the first murder. So John's telling us that hatred is the opposite of love. Cain's murder of Abel is a pure example of the absence of love. He writes in verse 14 that we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. See, hatred is the wish that the other person was not there. It's a refusal to recognise his rights as a person and the longing that he might be dead. Hatred is a symbol of death, and in the same way, love is a sign of life. John wants to be very, very clear here. He wants to leave us in, no, with no mistake that if we hate our brother, we are essentially murderers. We're obviously not killing someone, but in our heart, our intention is that that person doesn't exist. I think we see the story of Cain and Abel repeating itself in history over and over again. Sometimes the way it repeats itself in history is massive and obvious, like a a war, for example. And sometimes it's slightly below the surface, but I think this pattern can be described in this poorly executed diagram, which Aisha's going to put up, it's just a couple of lines. Um, so if you look at it as that line across the middle is the surface. You have things above the surface and you have things below the surface. Above the surface, things are overt, they're obvious. You can see them, you can touch them, you know that they're happening. And below the surface, they might be a bit more subtle and subversive. But above the surface, you could have things, and these are just a few ideas, like things like war or theft, anger, murder like Cain and Abel, abuse, violence. Below the surface, though, sometimes a little bit more difficult to put your finger on. Perhaps it's greeds. What are you thinking? Your failure to act. Selfishness. Feelings and hatred. The story of Cain and Abel tells us what the world looks like when it's without love. In a world without love, the world Things like this can happen. So above the surface, World War II, for example, was perhaps the worst example of uh, the story of Cain and Abel playing itself out. This is where brother, hated brother, and the world collapsed for six years and actually we're still feeling the effects today. A lot of the conflict in the Middle East and the Balkans perhaps stems from some of the issues created after the end of the Second World War. There's some pictures here of, uh, of London, just around the corner at St Paul's and, and Tower Bridge, when the Germans were, were bombing civilians and then the British later and the Americans bombed German civilians. And I'm not saying here that the uh, the Nazis were Cain and, and we were somehow able. I think we were all Cain one way or another. 60 million people died. Obviously at the moment, something a little bit more uh, up to date is the uh, crisis in, in Syria. Um, this is just a picture of some refugees in, in, in Syria and we know that many, many Refugees have died, coming from the Middle East, crossing Turkey, trying to get across the Mediterranean. These, all these deaths stem from hate, hate between political factions in Syria, hate between ISIS and other Muslims and Christians and pretty much everyone else. If you look at ISIS as an example, these are people that are filled with hate in their hearts. They're devoid of love, and therefore the world collapses around them. However, these things are very much above the surface. We can point to them, and pretty much everyone you know would point to them and go, yeah, that's I'm not like that, I won't cause that problem, I won't be part of that. But the things that are below the surface, they're a little bit harder to put your finger on. If we just look at our own city for a moment in London, what problems do you see in London around you that might be caused by a lack of love? You might have heard it said up here before that London is the loneliness capital of the world. Quite ironic considering how many millions of people live in the city, but it's also the loneliness where mental health issues, particularly around depression, exist in, in far greater proportions than in other parts of this country. We're around the corner from uh, Stockwell tube station. I go in there every day and walk out there every day. It's a, the entrance to Stockwell tube station is an, is an example, it's a symbol of some of the problems in this city. There's people out there with quite obvious mental health problems, Some people out there that are quite clearly quite troubled. Substance misuses, people begging. How often do we walk past those people? What causes those problems? In their lives, if you track back in their lives, how did they end up in that situation? Was it a lack of love in their family? Was it a lack of family? Have you ever gone down into the London Underground? I'm sure many of you have. How often do you feel hatred welling up in your heart? (laughs) Let me share with you an example. This is my own personal favourite. You're trying to get somewhere, because you're an important person, you need to get work on time, and you're going down an escalator. And there are signs everywhere that say, stand on the right, and you walk on the left. There's signs everywhere, above and below. Stand on the right walk on the left. Some escalators even have, you might have seen these, they have footsteps printed together and apart and you still have the person riding the left handrail, oh, where's the northern line? Where's the northern line? And I'm filled with hate in those moments, I don't know why, it just wells up within me. Why is this person obstructing me in me advancing? If I actually acted on that hatred I might want to push them down the stairs. But of course I wouldn't, because I'm British. I actually walk up to them, tap them on the shoulder. I'm terribly sorry, this is all my fault. Would you mind awfully moving out of the way? <laughs> we are British after all. Have you ever made eye contact with someone on the tube? And then immediately looked away into the glass and made eye contact eye contact again through the reflection. <laughs> oh, that's awful. We don't talk to people on the Tube because that's weird. I'm not telling you. This is not an example of saying, oh, I go on the Tube and now start talking to people because that's, that is quite strange. But the commute to work is actually a good example of how lonely London is, how absorbed people are in their worries um, and a lot of people in the, in the pain. I, f- I find for myself that the commute to work is the loneliest part of my day because you're on your own surrounded by thousands of people and, and actually that's when you start worrying about things, you start feeling your problems. And sometimes what you need is to connect with another human being, to feel love from another human being, which is why we look forward to coming home more than we look forward to going to work, I think. So we know what the world looks like when it's devoid of love. But what does the world look like when it is filled with love? In verse 16, John suddenly juxtaposes this position with Cain and Abel and says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. This is a radical call to sacrificial love. The he in this verse is talking about Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let me tell you about how Jesus laid down his life. Jesus was God, he came to earth, he lived the life as a man, he lived the perfect life. He didn't rebel against God. He followed God perfectly. He loved God. He had a perfect connection with God. And he was crucified and nailed to a cross in our place so that he can break the barrier between us and God so we can have a relationship with God that our rebelling of God is soaked up into that punishment on the cross. He was perfect and he gave everything. If Cain's life is an example of supreme hatred, then Christ is the perfect example of love. A person's life is their most precious possession. Doesn't matter how expensive your one-bedroom flat is in London, your life is your most expensive possession. Therefore, to give up your life is the biggest gift you can give someone. But to take someone's life or something from someone's life is the biggest act of rebellion you could do towards them. I'm going to tell you for a moment um, about a story that is found in this book um, called Journey's End. Uh, it's a story of um, RAF bomber commander in the, the Second World War. Um, if you don't know what happened there, uh, in response to uh, the Blitz when the Germans came over and, and redesigned uh, London... Um, the British and Americans uh, kind of alternated day and night, um, and they bombed American cities. It was all part of the, the, the campaign of strategic bombing to weaken the morale of the German people. Um, perhaps uh, there's debate to this day whether that was an atrocity or whether it was a necessary part of war. I'm not going to get into that debate now, but this book is basically filled with stories of these young men, the best of, our, of that generation, that were drafted up into Bomber Command, and they suffered the worst experience of the war. They suffered the highest... Uh, what they called the wastage rate, which meant every mission there was a 7% chance that you'd die. And you had to do 30 missions before you could go into training and come off the front lines, which basically meant the average time a Bomber Command crew member would survive is 15 missions. Basically, you, in 1943 and 1944, you didn't make it. You signed up, your, your chances of survival were less than 10% in that window. Out of 110,000 uh, serving bomber crew for the whole of the six years of the Second World War, 55,000 died, 50% died. And the ones that didn't were typically the ones that were serving right at the end or right at the beginning before the campaign really got started. I'm going to read to you uh, a story here um, from a Halifax bomber crew in 640 Squadron from uh, Leckenfield. This is the crew standing by their Halifax K.E. King. Uh, I've abridged the account for you so it doesn't go on, but let me just read it here. Sergeant Freddie Nuttall was standing alongside his pilot, Flight Officer Keyes Gomans, a Dutchman, when their Halifax released its load over Bockham. It was the last trip of their tour, and as Nuttall searched for the night fighters, the aircraft turned for home. But no sooner had it settled on track than a line of flak exploded immediately ahead. Sergeant Graham Kiwi Corner, the crew's New Zealand and New Zealander rear gunner, saw the shell blast. When there was an explosion at the front, the whole aircraft shuddered, and I heard Keyes gasp. The Dutch pilot had been killed immediately. A shrapnel whipped and pinged through the front of the aircraft, starting several fires. Goman's lifeless body tumbled down the steps into the navigator's compartment, his chute spilling out and the cords becoming entangled with the navigator. Then, with no one at the controls, the bomber pitched forward into a slow, spiral dive, which could only end one way. It was at that moment that Sergeant Nuttall, who had never handled an aircraft in his life, took over, holding the controls, stopping the spiral before it could turn into an uncontrollable spin that would have pinned the crew members helplessly to the fuselage by centrifugal force, but the aircraft was still going down. Sergeant Corner, who'd been listening to the drama on the intercom, rotated his turret and flipped backwards into the darkness. Two other members of the crew also bailed out, but on one parachute. Sergeant Ronald Heath pulled his ripcord, and Paddy Finnegan was plucked away by the jerk of the chute opening. Finnegan plummeted, arms and legs flailing thousands of feet to his death. Pilot officer um, Patterson and the navigator now realised the aircraft was doomed and stumbled with Patson leading towards the parachute stowage. The navigator later uh, recalled, I looked back to Freddie Nuttall, who was sitting at the controls to prevent the aircraft from spinning. His flying suit was alight, but despite my shouting to him to come, he waved me to go towards the rear escape hatch. Pilot officer Patterson bailed out, followed by the navigator, whose trousers had been eaten by the flames from the thighs down. He said, I had no recollection of actually pulling the ripcord, but the next moment the chute opened above me and immediately burst into flames again. I do remember seeing our burning aircraft dive and spin downwards. That must have been when Freddie Nuttall left the pilot seat Released the controls. The navigator landed in a garden in a house near Dusseldorf where an old man and a boy, who'd been under the impression the airman was a falling flare, picked him up and bandaged his face, hands, and legs before he was taken to hospital where he underwent skin grafts. Four of the seven crew of Halifax Caking survived and remained prisoners of war uh, for the remainder um, of the conflict. Um, Unfortunately, the hero of the story, um, Flight Sergeant Freddie Nuttall, was not so lucky. Uh, his grave can be found today in the, uh, the Reichswald Cemetery, um, and that's in a beautiful forest near the, near the Dutch border in Germany. This is a story of incredible sacrifice. During times of war, men would form close, brotherly relationships. These men were brothers. They'd been through the most incredible horror together, and Freddy held the controls to get his friend, friends out alive, knowing there was no way out once he let go. God calls us to lay down our lives. God calls us to hold the controls. Love is the willingness to surrender that which has value to our own life to enrich the life of another. I doubt there's anyone in this room that will ever be faced with a a situation like Freddie Nuttall where you could actually, by dying yourself, can save the life of another. We just don't live in that world. We don't We don't live in Syria where there's conflict happening. We are not part of Bomber Command. We probably won't experience something like the Second World War. Instead, we have a much more prosaic opportunity to share our possessions with the people around us in need. Love and sacrifice can take many, many different forms. It's not just about words. It's not about saying, I love you. It's not sentiment or talk. It's deeds It's doing things. Love is action. Love does. So what do we need to do? Well, let me tell you another story about uh, love and sacrifice that's quite uh, close to to my life. Some of you might remember this hot redhead. It's when she had bangs. Um, So I haven't seen her for quite a long time. She's coming home in exactly one day, 18 hours, 21 minutes, and 55 seconds. It's exciting, isn't it? Um, So... Yeah, I haven't seen her since May. She's gone 14 weeks to, to Borneo. Um, some pictures here of uh, what she's been up to. Um, if you're on Facebook at the moment, you'll see that she's enjoying the last few days by a, by a nice pool. But for the rest of the time, she's been deep in the jungle, um, helping isolated and remote communities. The message I got just before coming up to preach was, um, let me read it to you real quick. It's, uh Hi, darling. I've been stung eight times by a box jellyfish and three different people have peed on me. This has been the most painful and surreal night of my life and my face is covered in bruises and she's got me a picture of her face covered in bruises because she got stunned by jellyfish and then fell over and hurt herself. So having an absolute disaster of (laughs) the last few days but it looks great on Facebook. Um, So obviously I'm very, very keen to see her come back but walking back a bit before she went out, this is obviously, we've been married eight years, the longest time we spent apart was ten days you know, and, you, and that would be when she's in America, and, or I'm in America, and we've got Facebook and, uh, and not Facebook, um, FaceTime, so we can see each other and talk every day, and the time difference isn't too bad. This was a real sacrifice, particularly for her, having to leave everything around her, give up her job for three and a half months, and go to somewhere where she knows no one, and she's almost completely cut off from home. I've spoken to her, I think, 12 times in 14 weeks. It's an average of once a week, and we get about half an hour, because the only time we can really talk is about two o'clock in the afternoon, and I'm at work. So it's been a very difficult time, but it was her heart of willingness to sacrifice these things to go out there. There's people in this room, many people in this room and in this church who financially supported this adventure, who've sacrificed something that's valuable to you to enrich the lives of other people. not just faith, but the people she's affecting in Borneo. One of the things that she's been doing out there is training people to manage a sanitation, um, a water sanitation unit in a village where they suffer from a great deal of disease because no one knows how to... um, to to get clean water. There isn't any clean water. Now they have this system where people are trained and people are trained to train other people and that's what she's been involved in. That's something that's going to help that community flourish. By her personal sacrifice, others' others lives are enriched. Um, What opportunities do we have to love other people and sacrifice? In verses 17 and 18, John tells us But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in walk, love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. What are the needs around you today? Have a think for a moment. Who around you is suffering? Do you know anything that you can do to help? Do you have anything that can help that person, something that's valuable to you that would enrich their life? How are you gener- generous with other people? Is it easy for you? I'm gonna be honest with you for a moment. Uh, giving money and time is hard. It is hard, it's difficult. It's not something you you always jump to because money, I guess, can bring security. It can bring opportunity. Your time can help you relax. You all work, work, this is London, we all work long weeks. Um, It's a hard time, we don't have a lot of free time, but giving up those evenings and those weekends is is a difficult thing to do. It hurts. But let me tell you, when you actually do it, it's a hedonistic activity. You don't look back on it after giving someone a gift, for example, and think, I wish I hadn't given them a gift. Right? It's a good thing to do. Whereas if you don't do these things, I think that cycle can build up, those habits can build up in your life where you think about more and more of yourself and your own security and the people around you then can't flourish. Flipping a coin just for a moment. um, Are you an easy person to love? When someone takes you out for dinner, for example, you go out for dinner with someone else and they whip out that credit card at the end and go, don't worry, guys, we've got this. How hard do you fight them? So we always go through this, Faith and I, when we go out for dinner and, and uh, well, not always, but occasionally uh, we have some generous friends and sometimes they say, hey, we'll, we'll pay for dinner. My reaction is, "Ready? are you sure? Thanks, mate. Really appreciate it. I love it when people buy me dinner because I know I'm going to buy someone else dinner in the near future. It all comes out in the wash, right? Whereas Faith, on the other hand, should just start getting violent, start pushing, pu- pushing credit cards back and go, no, no, and she'll come back and go, no, actually, we'll pay for you. No, darling, we always have this argument on the way home. Babe, never rob someone of the opportunity to bless you. <laughs> right? You ever heard it's better to give than it is to receive? Don't rob that person of their ability to bless you. If someone's already made a decision to give you a barbecue, don't fight them. Thanks, Tom. Tom gave me a barbecue. Brilliant. I fought him once. You're allowed to fight them once. You're still British. You go, no, no, you, I'm sorry, like, You can't do that. But then let them. If they've made a decision to bless you, let them bless you. Be an easy person to love. It's a bigger gift to them often than it is to you. So let's have a, a little bit of fun with it for a moment. Let's, let's think of a few examples of how you can love people. I'm sure you've got your own ideas, but getting like hyper-practical for the moment. Um, let's go through a, a few things. See, loving someone starts with little steps. It's about habits. It's about building momentum about how you love another person. Number one, call your mother. Take out your neighbour's trash. Always give up your seat on the tube. To anyone, when you hear someone struggling financially or in need of a particular item, drop some money in their letterbox or in an anonymous envelope or buy them that item. When someone has a baby, get on that meal rotor as often as you can spare and cook what will probably be a pasta base dish. (laughs) If you don't have kids, offer to be a free babysitter to those who do have kids on a regular basis. I'm not free next week. <laughs> Give your time and serve here on a Sunday. Give your Saturday morning to support Emma Soars with Clever Clogs, helping kids to read good. Send a re- regular donation to Harriet Molyneux to support her first year in Turkey with a team trying to plant a church there and help that community flourish. Call your mother. <laughs> Fellas, buy your wife or your girlfriend some flowers. Ladies, Buy your husband or boyfriend his favorite beer. Stack shelves at food bank. Help your buddy paint his new house. Take your struggling friends out for dinner and pay for it. Don't just tell her you love her. Marry her. Spend the rest of your lives together. Adopt a child. Fight modern slavery. Talk to your neighbor. Call your mother. (laughs) Travel to Borneo. Plant some trees. Fight injustice support those in need, give your time, give your talent, give your cash, give your love, give your life, hold the controls, get your friends out alive, and call your mother. So I've talked a lot about what we can do and what we can do to love other people, but I don't want you to get the wrong end of the stick this morning and think that somehow by doing these things, you earn favour with God that you cannot be like Cain and have favour with God. You can be righteous like Abel just by loving other people. That's not quite what the message is here. We need a relationship with God first. God is the ultimate example of love and sacrifice and he has loved us by dying on the cross and he loves us all day, every day. You need a relationship with God. Your loving actions is a reflection of Christ's sacrifice. When you sacrifice for another person, you are reflecting God's love to those people if you have this horizontal relationship with God you have wait vertical relationship with God you have horizontal relationships of love with other people you can't have one without the other to follow Jesus is about loving other people and if you follow Jesus you would love other people verses 23 and 24 it makes it explicit And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. We know that we belong to God if we are reflecting his love in the world around us in the horizontal way. God's children must live in love, which means sacrificially laying down our lives, not just with words, but with concrete actions to demonstrate the truth of our love. Love is the evidence of life and should characterize our lives. People should be able to look at us and say, there's something going on there that they wish to sacrifice, that they're not self-centered, that they are living for a greater purpose. Their lives are revolving around something else. I want to quickly return to the the story um, of the missus out in in Borneo for a moment um, and about her heart attitude and something that I try and emulate to be like she 's always been a slightly more loving person than, than me, but she phoned me up um, maybe like a, maybe like a month ago and she was telling me the story of the, the Filipino community in Malaysia, so in the Sabah region of Borneo um, there are there 's a people group essentially of uh, illegal immigrants and refugees from the Philippines, for whatever reason, they suffered persecution or um, its economic migration, that they're in some way or another ended up in the Philippines, in, in Malaysia. The problem they have, and we have some similar problems in this country, but the problem they have is that when they come over illegally, they can't work because they can't get work permits, they can't get bank accounts, there's no way anyone unemployment. employment. The punishments for employing someone from the Philippines who's not legally registered with the government, um, is very, very severe, so it's not easy for them to get even very low-paid, low-skilled jobs. So what ends up happening is uh, those communities end up turning to crime. They live in areas, they literally live on the edge of landfill sites. So they live on houses on stilts, not because of water that needs to run in the house, but because there's so much trash, they lift the houses up. The houses are on stilts. They live in the dumps. In order to survive, they turn to crime. And then there's this endless... Cycle of crime and violence in that community that is devoid of love. The government won't support them. If the government tries to help, or a non government organization comes in and goes, Look, you need to help these people, they can't because it's politically suicidal because the Malaysian people see that community as criminals. And she was on the phone to me, just crying and saying, I'm staying, I'm staying here, and I'm going to start charity, I'm going to solve this problem. And my response was obviously quite unloving. I said, "Nope, you're coming back, even if I have to go there myself and get you. But when you come back, let's look at ways that you can actually do something. You can take a concrete action to help. What needs around you are there today? What can you see where you can express your heart and take action to love other people? It can be big, it can be small, it can be habitual. I want to return to the story of uh, Freddie Nuttall. You'll remember the navigator um, on, on the plane. This is the, the navigator here. So um, he was eventually freed by Patton's Third Army um, in 1945, um, or end of 1944, I can't remember. Um, uh, his name is Ron. Uh, he fell in love and married a woman called Margaret. And that's there on, on their wedding day, aren't they? A lovely couple. Uh, They had a child called Chris who fell in love with a woman called Elaine. They got married, and they had a son and daughter. There they are. Uh, And then the son fell in love with a woman called Faith, and they got married, and she's coming home in about 45 hours from Borneo. So uh, later on in his life, my grandfather, um, there's a picture of him here with me when I was, I think, one year old, on the left there. Um, I was a bit of a chubby baby. God, I was big, wasn't I? Right. So just before he passed away, he died in 1999, but um, he wrote his account that went into that book, Journey's End, um, and he said this, there's only Kiwi and I alive today. Kiwi was the rear gunner who who, um, was the first to bail out the plane. Um, But we're always very conscious of the fact that we're only here today because of the sacrifice that Freddie Nuttall made. He's only an ordinary guy, a butcher's boy, but in that moment, he was not found wanting. I literally wouldn't be alive today if it wasn't for the sacrifice of Freddie Nuttle. Everything I've been able to live through and all the experiences I've had were made possible. The providence of God, the sovereignty of God, was evident in that night in nineteen—it was it was Bonfire Night in nineteen forty-four, November the fifth. All that was made possible. My dad's life was made possible. He retired early to retrain as a therapeutic counsellor because of um, his heart that he has towards people suffering from mental health problems or trauma or depression or suffering with grief. So what he does for the moment is a loss-making business. He does it because he loves doing it. He helps other people. That was made possible because of the sacrifice of someone else. So he can sacrifice for someone else. I wonder if the band could, uh, could come up as we, as we wrap up. Thanks, guys. Don't think that your love and sacrifice can't actually change things. Don't think that the way you love other people can't actually make a difference. Someone's life is so much greatly enriched if someone loves them. If they know that their friends love them, their life is enriched. Just ask someone how they are. A lot of the time, people are just suffering in silence, waiting for someone to rescue them. Why don't you ask how your best buddy's doing? Love them with your actions. Love them with your words. Love them with your time. Love is more than a mushy feeling. It's not just uttering kind words. It means the Holy Spirit is redirecting our lives in that direction of love. Love is action. God's sacrificial action towards us. Our sacrificial action to the world around us. Love does. Why don't we stand together? Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.